Ecclesiastes 3.15, but Ecclesiastes 3.15-22. Lo que ahora existe ya existía, y lo que hay de existir existe ya. Dios llama el pasado a cuentas, y he visto algo más bajo el sol, maldad donde se dictan las sentencias y maldad donde se imparte la justicia. Pensé entonces, al justo y al malvado los juzgará Dios. Pues hay un tiempo para todo obrar y un lugar para toda acción. Pensé también con respecto a los seres humanos. Dios los está poniendo a prueba para que ellos mismos se den cuenta de que son como los animales. Los seres humanos terminan igual que los animales. El destino de ambos es el mismo. Pues unos y otros mueren por igual. Y el aliento de vida es el mismo para todos. Así que el hombre no es superior a los animales. Realmente todos, todo es vanidad y todo va hacia el mismo lugar. Todo surgió de polvo y a polvo todo volverá. ¿Quién sabe si el aliento de vida de los seres humanos se remonta a las alturas y de los animales desciende a las profundidades de la tierra? He visto, pues, que nada hay mejor para el hombre que disfrutar de su trabajo, ya que eso le ha tocado. Pues, ¿quién traerá para que vea lo que sucederá después de él? Again, Ecclesiastes 3, 15 to 22. Whatever is already been and will, will have, and will have, sorry, I practice Spanish a lot. Let me, uh, let me get this in English down. Whatever has, whatever is, has already been and will, will be, has been before. And God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so, does the, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, good morning, family. I'm going to call you guys uh, family because I think that's what we are. It's the beauty of getting to go and preach other places is you get to just, yeah, you get to be part of your family. It's fun to just be able to, to fit right in. This thing weighs a ton. Wow. That's awesome. Um, <clears throat> well, I guess just a, a few things about me so that we can all uh, get to know one another. As Dan said, my name is Mike. Uh, it's really hard for me to refer to Dan as Dan because I know him as Danny. That's how far back we go. <laughs> um, someone, someone, I was talking to someone the other day and they said, how's Danny? And I said, yeah, that's how far back we go, Danny. 
my lovely wife is here, Abby. This is a really cool opportunity. Uh, her and I, we've been married for 17 years. We have four kids. Uh, I look across the faces this morning and I feel old. <sighs> uh, we have four kiddos ranging from our oldest is 14 and then our youngest, our precious daughter. We have three boys and then a daughter and she's almost seven. Um, so that's our, our kiddos. Uh, we live in, in southern Idaho, little city called Twin Falls, and we actually live outside of Twin Falls in a little town called Buell, uh, which is descriptive of what the town is like. <laughs> uh, we live on a little 12-acre uh, homestead. Uh, I'm not going to tell, tell you how much it costs. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, and we have, um, I'm going to have to make an adjustment on this real quick. My iPad's going to, like, go out. Um, I'll try to see if I can do this. We have six cows. We have two dogs. And we have, what else do we have? Chickens, like 30 chickens. We're about to have, like, 100 chickens as well. Um, so, yeah, we have, like, a, a legitimate little farm thing. It's fun. For the most part. Okay, I got this fixed. I'm actually from San Diego, too. Like, I was born here. Uh, so I, coming here is uh, really, like, it just brings back so many memories. I think we, we lived here for about the first nine years of my life. My, my grandparents, my grandfather and grandma lived in the mountains of Julian. Um, I lived in Escondido. Uh, my Oma and Opa lived in Escondido. Um, I'm a Padres fan through and through. Yes. See, I can't do that in Twin Falls. That was wonderful. My fondest memories were going to uh, Jack Murphy Stadium. Yeah, see? This is so good. <laughs> um, and watching Tony Gwynn. This is the good old days. So really, really excited for this year. Really excited for this year. All right, I think that's it. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you that we get to be together this morning. Oh, it is such a, yeah, this is a real privilege to get to open your word, to get to walk through difficult, dark passages such as Ecclesiastes. And yet in the midst of this, to just see, uh, to be aware that you are perfectly good, you're compassionate, you're, you're gracious, you're merciful. You care more than anyone about the, the poor, the marginalized, the downcast, uh, those who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so this morning, would you just help us to see Jesus? Enable us to just be aware of your presence here. You are present here with us. And so I pray, help us to be present to you. Holy Spirit, I pray for your help. Uh, my temptation here is to try to perform, uh, but this is not about me. This is about you, and so I pray that you would enable me to just fade into the background and that the words here would be your words and not mine, and that you would just help me uh, in what I say to just point to Jesus. Uh, let us walk away uh, this morning refreshed 
and encouraged and strengthened as your people. It's in Jesus' good name that we pray. Amen. So I think there are, there are a few more daunting observations in this life than the observation of suffering. All of us can look around this world, and, and that's what we see on, on repeat, is suffering. We experience suffering. Yeah? Uh, but this, this reality is heightened, I think, when the suffering uh, that we see, um, the numerous injustices that we see on a daily basis, um, it's heightened when it's at the hands of what we deem to be unjust. Right? There's like this, this sense in which we can handle the, the, the reality that life is hard. Right? Anyone experience that? Like life is just hard. And we can all kind of settle into that reality. But when we, when we look and when we observe and we see suffering that's unjust or when we see suffering that uh, leads to death, then we're undone. Like there's something about that that's different. Something about that is unique. To step into this a little bit farther, the question, of course, then comes, where's God in all of this? Alexis touched on this a little bit last week, touching on verse 11, the elephant in the room, as she called it, right? Making this, this observation that if everything has been made beautiful, then why do we look around and observe such a mess? Such a mess. It was weird last night. We went on a, on a drive, my wife and I, and we were, you know, we were driving around this area. And then I wanted to go to Petco because I wanted to go to the Padres store. And we did. Uh, but it's such, it's a, that's a weird experience to go from up here and then to drive into the heart of downtown. It's a very, very weird experience. It just kind of hits you like, whoa, this is, this is different. It's a beautiful, messy reality. And these are, these are no easy questions, right? These are the questions that we're often challenged with ourselves when we see the various forms of injustice all around us. And there's certainly the questions that our friends and our families and our coworkers and our classmates mock us with. Like this, is, this is where they go. If, if this God that you claim is so good and loving, then why this? Where is he in the midst of all of the tragedies? And it's, it's kind of this cliched yet honest question, right, of how a good and loving God could allow such things to take place. And it's very likely that even some of you are here with that experience. Like you're here this morning, and, and that's, that's the question that you're wrestling with deeply. And if that's you, I want you to know that your questions are perfectly okay, and your observations are actually valid. And furthermore, you need to understand that God is not displeased or shocked at what you and I are doubting and wrestling with. God is able to handle our doubts. He's able to handle our wrestlings. But every single one of us in here, we want the answer. Right? We want the answer to the wickedness that we see every single day. That's universal. Like every single human, regardless of religion, social status, gender, and education, wants to see it end. Right? Like not a single one of us is in here. It's like, no, I hope this continues. This is fantastic. <laughs> we all observe the suffering. We all observe the injustices. We all want them to end. This we all have in common. Yet, 
try as hard as we might, the solution is seemingly never within our grasp. There might be occasional glimmers of hope, but then we look again and we're blasted with more wickedness and more injustice. And to complicate matters, we're being nonstop bombarded with the numerous forms of injustice through our phones. And there's this sense in which we all feel like we're supposed to have all of the solutions to all of the problems all of the time. Anyone? But it's unbearable. It's one of the reasons why, as Dan has said several times, we all have at least a low-grade anxiety and exhaustion. Constantly being overwhelmed by these things. Wickedness, injustice, the meaning of life and death. This is where Kohelet takes us this morning. The guest preacher gets the easy ones. Dan has said on a number of occasions that Kohela is a stiff drink. The drink is getting stiffer. The burn is getting stronger. It's not getting any easier to swallow. Now, as we get into this, we need to remember a couple of things. Dan said a couple of weeks ago, I think this is on the screen for us. He said this, he said in Ecclesiastes, we are sitting at the feet of a teacher who was a chief cynic. We're using his questions and frustrations, asking ourselves where we think like this man. Am I thinking like him? Should I think like him? Where is he right? Where is he wrong? In other words, what, what Kohela is saying, it's not just these blanket statements, like they're observations, and we have to engage with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and, and make some observations ourselves. Trimper Longman, in his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, says this. He says, Kohelet is a doubting wisdom teacher who struggles with the religious traditions of Israel, specifically with how their teachings square with the human experience, which is a wonderful observation. At the same time, I just find a lot of comfort in this. Like, this, this ought to, to create in you just a love for Scripture, because Scripture is not avoiding reality. Scripture is actually very honest about reality. And Scripture invites us to very honestly uh, enter in with it and to see the beauty of Yahweh. So with that, let's get into our text. The main idea this morning is this, is that Kohelet turns his attention to the injustices that he observes, wondering what God will do about it, wondering if God will do anything about it. And if God will do nothing, what then is the solution how should we then live? And so I just have three points for us, and then we'll kind of make some practical application at the end. So the outline is going to work like this. Number one is observing wickedness. Number two is making sense of wickedness. And number three is pushing back against wickedness. So number one, observing wickedness. So look at, look at the text, uh, starting in verse 16. It starts out with this phrase, I also observed under the sun, or, and I saw something else under the sun. And this simply turns our attention to see that Kohela is shifting his attention. Now, in doing this, he's, he's not completely shifting his attention away from what you looked at last week. Chapter 3 really does fit together as a whole. So he's not completely turning his, away, his attention away from the concepts of time, as we'll see more in just a bit but he is shifting his attention to an observation that he has made. And it's an observation that he's unsure of how to fit within the short time span of human life. And so what's the observation? Well, it's this, verse 16. I also observed under the sun there is wickedness, and at the place of judgment, and there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. 
Now, this is a really interesting line uh, in, in your NIV Bibles. It, it shows it to you, that it's, it's, in, it's in parallel verse. Right? So you have, you have this phrase, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. It's poetic. And the poetry is emphasizing something. Kohelet is making an observation that just doesn't make any sense to him. Here's what he's doing. He's, he's looking to the place where he expects to see justice, but he only sees injustice. He's, he's looking to the place where he expects to see righteousness, but again, he only sees injustice. Commentators believe that Kohelet has the justice system in mind, like the court of law specifically. He's observing the court of law, the place where he, where we should expect to be able to see justice and righteousness being enacted, and yet even there he only sees injustice. And so he's outraged. He fits well into our culture. He's outraged. And if not outraged, at the very least, there's this sense of defeat there's this sense in, of like, I should be able to look here and see something right. Like, do we experience this? Right. I, this, is, this is the kind of wickedness that is all around us, is it not? Uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe some of you have heard of this. Uh, it was my wife and I were watching Netflix. And uh, there's this series on there, it's a docu-series about the the Murdaugh murder mysteries. Have any, of you, have any of you seen this? Anyone? Okay. Uh, so we were intrigued. And I was intrigued because I had seen something about it on the news. I was, and so then I saw it on Netflix. I was like, well, what is this? It's supposed to be a really big deal. It's on the news and Netflix. <laughs> and uh, it was a really just, it was a dark, dark story, right? And it started out with this, this group of, of, of kids older teens, younger 20s, whatever, they're just out partying, like they were living the Ecclesiastes experience. And uh, one night they were out and they were just a drunken mess. Uh, they went out on a boat and uh, I think the, the, the son's name is Paul Murdoch and he um, wrecked the boat. Uh, big mess. One of the girls, Mallory Beach, flew out of the boat and she, she died. And the story goes on to basically say uh, that the Murdoch family was a powerful family uh, within this little small town in South Carolina. And the, 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 you know, the, the center of the story was like, you don't mess with this family. If you try to mess with this family, you're not going to get anywhere. Uh, because what was interesting about the Murdoch family was that they were uh, they're lawyers. Like they owned the law firm in this little town in South Carolina, and they had the police in their back pocket. They had uh, the entire justice system in their back pocket. They used it to their advantage. Uh, they stole money. They, everything that they could possibly do illegally, basically, is what they did. They used, they leveraged their, their power and their millions in, in riches uh, to their own advantage. And the result wound up being injustice for other people, for other families. Now, the, the story recently ended in that, you know, it's, it's a long story, you should go watch it. And he was, he was, you know, he was found guilty for murdering his son and his, his wife. 
But at the heart of it is this reality that you have these, these people in this place, and it's a place where you should look and be able to see righteousness or justice in some way, shape, or form, and yet over and over and over again, there's this just repeated story of wrong and injustice. It's just a classic picture of broken humanity. And, and we know this experience. So I wanna, I wanna ask, what do you observe? I wonder, like, when you observe the world, what do you see? When you swipe open your phones, when you turn on Netflix, when you scroll social media, when you watch the news, I don't know if you guys watch the news or not, what do you see? Like, if, if you could just, just hear for a moment, like a little participation, if you, if, just one word, that's all you get, one word, to describe what you see, what, what would you say? Fusion, badness, politics, chaos. What was that? Media spins, anger, division, anxiety. Wow, you guys are negative. <laughs> yeah, right, my, that, that's my guess. Like we don't. We don't see things very positively. Right? A, sad inter, a sad observation in and of itself might be that the stories of injustice have become our entertainment. Right? And perhaps that's the universality of the experience. Like there's something that just like we connect there. At the same time, it might just be that we, we just don't know how to handle it anymore. I don't, I don't know. But let's, let's just take this a step further. Right? When you look to the court systems, what do you see? When you look to law enforcement, what do you see? When you look to the jails, what do you see? When you look to politicians, what do you see? When you look to government, what do you see? When you look to the public school systems, what do you see? When you look to church leaders, what do you see? Just like we just demonstrated, justice and righteousness are not the first words that come to mind. And is this not frustrating and exhausting Like every day, our experience, what we observe, what we're being bombarded with is anything but, it seems, justice and righteousness. And with this, Kohelet agrees. Because when we look to our schools, we want to see a safe place for our kids to go where they can get a good education. Instead, we have mass shootings every week. When we look to our politicians and our government, we want to see leaders who have the best interests of the people in mind. Instead, we have liars, cheats, and megalomaniacs sitting in the places of highest authority. When we look to our law enforcement, we want to see men and women protecting and serving. Instead, we are far too often seeing brutality and abuse of power. When we look to our churches, we want to see pastors and people who love Jesus and humbly serve one another. Instead, we often see hypocrisy of all sorts. Now, I know that those are all very broad-brushed broad brushed summaries that have tons of need for nuance in them. But I think it's fair to say that we regularly look to these people in these places with the hopes, with the desire to see righteousness and justice, but we are regularly let down. And we say with Kohelet, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, 
wickedness was there. The point simply being this, that something isn't right. So what's the hope? How do we, how do we make sense of the wickedness that he observes? So number two, making sense of wickedness. So after making his observation, uh, Kohelet now goes on to try to make sense of what he's observing. And he begins to make sense of the injustice problem with what looks like trust in God. So look there at verse 17. He says, I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked since there is a time for every activity and every work. So see what he's doing? He's, he's connecting back to chapter three, verse one, right, where he's already made the observation that there is a time for everything under the sun. And he's recognizing, he's, or his initial thought and his hope is that God will do what is just. Right? He will rightly judge the righteous and the wicked, and this is a good place to be. Like This would be a great place for Kohelet to stop and to rest because doing so would have set him squarely in the teachings of the Torah and the prophets, which teach that God too is angered at the injustices in which humans enact upon one another. God cares deeply about injustice. He cares deeply about justice being enacted. Uh, you, can't, you can't read through the prophets without getting the sense of this reality. All right, so a couple of, of, of texts that kind of come to my mind, Isaiah chapter one, just sets the tone for you know, all 66 chapters of Isaiah. And what is the tone that said, why is God upset? Because of injustice, right? I, I mean, God just basically says, I'm, I'm really sick of your uh, religion. I'm sick of your, your, your practices. I'm, I'm tired of your fasting. I'm tired of your sacrifices. All of this is just, it's garbage because you're just living in these unjust ways. Right? Uh, we're all familiar with, with passages like, like Micah, chapter six, right? To, to walk humbly, to love mercy, to seek justice. Uh, Hosea chapter six, verse six, also that the, the Lord desires mercy and not sacrifice. And, and just on repeat, all throughout, right? Um, you see, God is displeased with the control that we often try to take, control that doesn't belong to us. What we see in scripture is that Yahweh is indeed concerned for the poor and the powerless and he will do justice. His deeds are the decisive ones, not the de deeds of the wicked. Right. Uh, one commentator, Ian Provon, says this. He says, quote, it should not be thought that God's inactivity in respect to wickedness signifies a concession of sovereignty to wickedness over the places in which it is found. In those very places, God will, at the right time, bring justice. But Kohelet doesn't rest here. He doesn't stop. Therefore, rather than a hope-filled resilience, he crumbles. 
It's almost as if he thinks that what he has just said to himself is merely wishful thinking. It's too good to be true because the injustice that he observes is just too much. And so this plays itself out in the rest of the text. Look with me at verses 18 through 21. He says, I said to myself, so he continues his observation, this happens so that God may test. The idea of that is, is bringing to light. That he may test the children of Adam and they may see, which is linking back to the test, for themselves that they are like animals. For the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. All are going to the same place. All come from dust. All return to dust. Who knows if the spirit of the children of Adam go upward and if the spirits of animals go downward to the earth. Oh, it's dark. So what's going on here? Well, the short of it is that Kohelet wants to make sense of everything. He wants to make sense of everything. He wants an answer. Why injustice where there should be justice? Why doesn't God do anything now? And if he isn't doing anything now, will he ever do anything? And how do we know? This is where he gets really dark. See, the, the language here is, is really complicated. Um, but it, it culminates in this question, this observation well, the humans and animals, they just must all be the same. Our fate is no different than their fate. We just live, we die, we all experience the same demise. This momentary existence is all there is. Now, at this point, we're left to really question the theology of Kohelet. Does he really believe that humans and animals are the same? This is the questioning part. This is where we have to engage with our minds and assess what he's saying. Does he really believe that there's no afterlife? Well, in part, we have no way of being 100% certain what his understanding is on whether or not dogs go to heaven. He's probably certain that cats go to hell. <laughs> I agree with that statement from a couple of weeks ago wholeheartedly. Sorry, I'm sorry. Have you ever experienced a cat, though? <laughs> We're not sure what the extent of the scriptures Kohelet had. At the very least, though, I think we have to assume that he's immersed in some way, shape, or form in the teachings of Torah. And if that's the case, then he is certainly making a departure from what Torah teaches regarding the distinctions between humans and animals in the afterlife. Can anyone just think of a passage that might give us a distinction between humans and animals? Yes, Genesis, good. Like the very first couple pages, right? Very clear. <laughs> but what Kohel has said here further clarifies his truncated view of God. Like that's been, that's been coming to the forefront in the first few chapters, and that's getting clarified here. He has a very truncated view of God. Remember, his references to God are always Elohim, not Yahweh. That is, there, there's a difference here between the generic and the personal. God revealed himself to his people as Yahweh, the God of compassion and faithful love. Kohelet does not seem to know him in this way. That's at least not what, he, that's at least not what he's experiencing. 
So we can observe that Kohelet has hit a low point, a very, very low point. He seems to be losing his mind. And this seems to be at least part of the point that this text is actually making. Right? It's, and it's the observation that we need to make because where else can he go? This is, this is the only reality that can he, he can experience is that having abandoned his hope in God that he mentioned in verse 17, he has to now figure out on his own how to reconcile the wickedness that he's observing. At least that's what he thinks. He, he thinks that he can't go on living without knowing, without having some like clear reconciliation of what he's seeing. But this is the error of his ways. This is, this is the error. This is where he's gone wrong. And this is typological of the error of all humanity. See, in his attempts and in our attempts to make sense of everything under the sun, he's losing his mind. And so it goes with us too. When we try to make sense of everything, like everything, that's the, the only logical conclusion is we will, we will go crazy. Alexis said this last week. I thought it was beautiful. She said, things become maddening and frustrating when we begin demanding answers and knowledge that put us in the seat of God. The demand to know will drive us crazy because some things will never be clear. The creator will not let the creature be his equal. Right? Like if you guys didn't write that down last week, you should write it down this week. this is what Kohela is doing. He wants to be equal with God. And he gave a nod to trusting God, but he doesn't stay there. The result of this is a reduction of the image of God, uh, the image of God down to something that's more akin to an animal. Now, this is where it gets only darker, right? Because, because if this is how things work, if, if this is all that there is, if all life is, is we're just the same as animals, we live, we breathe, we die, then why does anything matter? Why should we care? Why be concerned about anything but ourselves? If humans are just the same as animals, then why not treat one another like animals? That makes sense. Why care about wars? Why care about racism? Why care about unjust systems of law? Why care about sexuality? Why care about marriage? Why care about stewardship? On and on and on we could go. Why should we care if this is all there is? A deep breath. How are we? Let's make an observation. This actually is the human problem. Like th this, this is the story of what has been believed. This is our cultural moment. 
as God continues to be pushed out of the picture, the results are not a betterment of humanity. It's not the flourishing of humanity. Rather, it's a decreation. And we, and we don't know how to respond. Should we be entertained? Should we be outraged? Should we just throw our hands in the air? As we continue to, to grasp for power on our own, we only become more and more like the animals. And, and that is, that's what we observe. Once again, Ian Provence says this, he says, quote, human beings get above themselves and from this lofty position, they pour down suffering on others. So what do we do? How do we move on? How should we then live in this moment? How do we make sense of the wickedness? Right, do we, do we follow the path of Kohelet or is there something else? So number three, pushing back against wickedness. So let's just observe this. Kohelet's observations are, let's just say they're obviously incomplete and short-sighted. Something is very clearly missing. And, and left in this place, we are only left with bad news. But we, by God's grace, we have the full story. See, we're here this morning as apprentices to Jesus. And, and if, if we're here and not full-on disciples yet, like we're at least curious and in the process, we're learning, we're here this morning with at least a little bit of hope that there's something better than the unfulfilling garbage that this world keeps dishing out to us. Why is that, is that not why you're here? Because <laughs> there's, there's something hopeful you see, as disciples, we believe that not only will God do something, we believe that he has done something. He sent Jesus. And in his life, Jesus came and accomplished all that we could not. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. That is the good news of a better kingdom a kingdom from out of this world, but designed to slowly filter into and restore this world. Jesus said this in the Gospel of Luke. He said that the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. That is good news. You see, Jesus came to bring something new. It's an entirely different way of existing. And it doesn't fit into the political spectrums that we're constantly being told to get boxed into. It's an entirely different way. It's the way of the kingdom. To bring justice, Jesus counseled his followers to absorb the injustices of this world into themselves and to offer healing through sacrifice. He said this in the Gospel of Matthew. He said, 
You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Who says that? Jesus and his disciples. This is the way of Jesus. But he didn't just tell us to do these things. He absorbed the ultimate injustice into his body so that we could live this way. See, he would accomplish this by going to a cross and dying unjustly himself. At the hands of Roman soldiers, yes, but even more so, even more so, at the hands of his own people, at the hands of the leaders of Israel, those who were supposed to care most about the word of God and the justice of God are the ones who killed God. But Jesus would not be held by death. Amen. See, he rose from the grave and he has definitively answered our questions. Our our questions are definitively answered in the resurrection of Jesus. There will be a resurrection for all of us because of the resurrection of Jesus. And for those whose life is given to Jesus, it's a resurrection to eternal life. The invitation is, is to come, to repent. And in repentance, the big idea is this. It's letting go of our control, relinquishing power, realigning our worship from self to Yahweh. It's an entirely different way of life. But for those who are unwilling to relinquish their lives and their power, a resurrection of eternal death. And so that's the line in the sand. What are we going to do? The question is, will we repent? Will will we let go of control? I loved the prayers this morning, so many prayers this morning about this. Letting go of control, relinquishing power, realigning our worship from self to Yahweh. Will we repent and join this new humanity of the church? Because this is who we are in Christ, is this new humanity. So how does this work itself out? Most of you... If you're a guest here this morning, this might be your first time hearing this, uh, but most of you are aware of the postures that you've taken on for living this year, right? Once again, what are they? Well done. Yes, rest and resilience. Uh, and this is, this is an act of counterformation, right? As an act of counterformation, you are taking on the postures of rest and resilience, but how does this work in a world that seems to be continually bearing, t- barreling toward an animal-like destruction? As disciples of Jesus, we rest.
because we really do believe that God is sovereign. Right? Like we, we actually rest in what is said there in verse 17. God will do that which is just and right. We believe that. We, be, we believe that he has already begun to right the wrongs in and through the work of Jesus, and one day this work will be complete. Furthermore, we are resilient because of the resurrection. Right? Like, if not for the resurrection, we truly are fools. We should go do something else. But Jesus has risen, and his resurrection compels us in our living. We wake up and we live daily in this jacked up world with a non-anxious presence because we know our king is on the throne. That reorients everything for us. So I just wanna, I wanna close with just a few practical thoughts here in order to help guide us in living out this life in Christ. Three, three things, I like the number three. Um, first is this, recovering the Imago Dei. If, if we want to engage as apprentices to Jesus, recovering the Imago Dei is essential. Humans are not animals. Right? We are image bearers. Every single one of us. Now, what's important in this is, is to understand that we are wonderfully unique Praise God for the diversity of humanity. It's one of, the, one of the beauties of leaving southern Idaho from time to time. Southern Idaho is very uh, white. <laughs> so I, I don't, there's no other way to put it. It's very, very like the same, just very the same. Coming to a place like San Diego, it's just so, there's, there's so much beauty in the diversity of humanity. I just love it. It's beautiful. But here's the thing is, we're also all the same. Right? We're all the same in that we will all die. Right? And I, I think Kohelet wants to teach us this. He revisits this reality over and over and over again. That regardless of our skin color, our education, our bank account, our marital status, or anything else that this culture tries to define us by, we are all breathing. And one day that breath will stop. Does that reality not level the playing field a little bit? Like, does that not shift the way that we see one another? This is a recovery of the Imago Dei. Last week, I was listening to a podcast, uh, Theology in the Raw. I don't know, anyone listen to Theology in the Raw? It's a good podcast. Uh, Preston Sprinkle, he was interviewing Dr. Kelly Capic. I don't know if that's how you say his name. Anyways, uh, the topic was on celebrating our creaturely limitations. And he said something that I just thought was profound. He was talking about, if he writes another book, uh, he said this. He said, I'm thinking of writing a book called Go Therefore and Make Humans. Because when you ask, what do I think about the future? I think Christian discipleship in the future is about helping people reconnect with what it means to be truly human. And I think he's right. The church is intended to be, this is the way I've been thinking of this at least, we're to be a collective witness. And I think that's what we're to be witnessing to is what does it mean to be truly human 
a, a, a human who, who loves other humans, who's resting deeply in the sovereignty of God and resilient because of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the picture of a new humanity. Kohelet gets at this in verse 22. Uh, And commenting on this, again, Ian Provon says this, implicit in the observation in the context of Ecclesiastes 3, especially verse 22, is the suggestion that we are to live life not in the hope of gaining some advantage over the rest of creation with which we share dust and breath, but simply for its own sake, finding joy in it and receiving that joy as itself the reward that living brings us. We are in that sense to be like the animals, who rejoice only in the moment and do not make great plans for their lives. Like there's... there's just an experience and a celebration of joy that we're to embrace in this rest, this reality of God's sovereignty. This is, this is something Abby and I come back to all the time with animals. Like we have the beauty of you know, observing animals. And one of the coolest things about observing animals is they don't care about anything. Like, they, like all they want is new grass and each other and they're good to go. They're not trying to be something else. Uh, we had a pig once that thought it was a cow, but that was weird. Off, one-off circumstance. We took care of the pig. That's what you do as a farmer. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, bacon. It's reality. But they, there is just this, this stillness that they experience. The cow just tries to be a cow. The chicken just is okay with being a chicken. My dogs are okay with being dogs. Humans are okay with being humans because of this image that has been given to us. That that reality is recovered in the resurrection of Jesus. Apart from the resurrection, resurrection of Jesus, we're always striving for something else always trying to be something else, always trying to become something else. Second, we need to learn to live as the body of Christ. So one of the greatest questions when it comes to issues of justice and injustice in this world is how do we then do the work of justice? Where do we start? Anyone? Like we see all that there is in front of us and... We're like, oh, there's a million things we could do. Where do we start? <laughs> how, does, how, does this, how does this begin? There's so much. Not to mention the fact that we're busy. Right? We live busy lives. Uh, like I said at the beginning, there's so much that we could possibly do, yet it's impossible to do everything. So just a, a few thoughts here with this. First, we need to embrace the truth that God is concerned about eternal salvation and social justice. In other words, the gospel that we proclaim has social implications. It always has social implications. If we're hearing a gospel that doesn't have an impact on the social world around us, we're hearing a truncated gospel. And so we shouldn't try to dichotomize these, as has so often been the case in evangelicalism. I was working through this last week in the gospel of Matthew. That's where our church is at. 
And Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 in the woes, he, he says this, he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Then he says, these things you should have done without neglecting the others. Right? Jesus says that there are things in the kingdom that are more important than others. And what he says is of primary importance is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so we don't, we don't separate this kind of like spiritualized idea of just needing to get people saved from also caring for and loving our neighbor. Um, second, we need not be overwhelmed by all the needs, but we can be attentive to God and love our neighbor wherever we have the opportunity. C.S. Lewis offers us some wisdom here. He says this, quote, I have received no assurance that anything we can do will eradicate suffering. I think the best results are obtained by people who work quietly away at limited objectives, such as the abolition of the slave trade or prison reform or factory acts or tuberculosis, not by those who think they can achieve universal justice or health or peace. I think the art of life consists of tackling each immediate evil as well as we can. Right? Just like little incremental, where has God placed you? Where, like, where has God placed you in your neighborhoods, your works, your schools, wherever it may be? That's the space that you're, that, that's the space. Right? And then third, we have to see that the work of Christ is to be seen as being accomplished by the entire body of Christ. That is, it's not individualistic. You don't go save the world on your own. Jesus did that. <laughs> right? We work together as the body of Christ. Right? Ecclesiastes makes this clear in chapter three. There, right, there are times and seasons. Our limitations ebb and flow, but regardless of what that may look like, disciples of Jesus are learning to love God and neighbor. And collectively, we are evangelizing unreached people groups, praying with children in hospitals, caring for recovering sex traffic workers, and fighting against racial justice, on and on and on, because these are the realities that are happening all throughout the world through the church. And we are participants in that. And so it's this, this global reality that we are all partaking in. It's because we're part of the body of Christ. And by the Spirit, I'm not just united to Christ, but I'm united to all the people who are doing those things. This is how we do justice. And then finally, we embrace the mystery. Now, I know this was talked about last week, but it's worth talking about again. A friend of mine recently, he made an observation in relation to Genesis chapter three, and it was this. He said, I wonder if when we took the fruit, when humanity took the fruit in the garden, we took something we didn't need to take. It was a violation of living in the mystery. Derek Kidner, in his little commentary on Ecclesiastes, says this, our first need is not to teach God his business, but to learn the truth about ourselves, a lesson we are very slow to accept. And this is the space where Kohelet just could not rest. 
Yet this is the place where we are invited to rest. To be at rest and to be resilient disciples of Jesus is to live in the mystery. It's rarely easy and it often doesn't look all that great. We will never have all of the answers. But to live faithfully in the mystery is a declaration that God is God and we are not. He is our good and loving Father. He has revealed to us that which is necessary. No more and no less. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Ephesians. He says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Would you stand with me as we read our closing liturgy? Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself and all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I'm gonna pray.